Welcome everyone to episode 44 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Ben Hunt at Epsilon Theory on Twitter. Uh, ben was one of my most popular podcast guests. He was podcast guest number four. Ben, thanks for coming back. It's great to be back, Brandon. I mean, number four, that's right. You were just, just starting this. I mean, you've made this a real community here. So, so congrats to you. Well, I was, I was hesitant to invite you back. You've become too big time for my podcast, but I, I took the chance and you said yes, so I'm very appreciative. Not at all. Any, anytime. Anything, any, anything for my godfather. What led me to ask you is that I did my first Twitter spaces the other day with my friend Peter Jennings. How was that? It was really fun. I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the Twitter spaces for sure. Um, and there was an old school hardcore poker player on there named uh, Jay Krantz at, at Jay Krantz. He's now sort of has a, a foot in the crypto and gaming spaces. And he told me that he was a big fan of my podcast. And honestly, comments like that are what keep me going, right? Like people I respect who say that they're a fan. And he said, I especially love the content with Ben Hunt. And, oh, wow. and he said that Ben Hunt's risk framework of min-max regret changed my life because mm -hmm. it got me to sell some crypto at the, at the highs. And now I'm, I'm not dying in regret. Love it. Yeah, no, it's a very powerful way of approaching the world. Uh, mini max regret. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we can, we can talk about that too, if you like, but it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. I have a plan today. I want to talk about your column on the Fed in GMI. Then I want to talk about your recent column on crypto. I understand a part two is coming soon. That's the, yep. the MacGuffin. Um, and then we want to chat about the content space a little bit. I will digress for a moment, though, and go back to our, our first conversation in early November 2019. I, I also internalized the min-max regret framework. I didn't internalize, I didn't learn as much from you as I should have, because <laughs> <laughs> one of the surprising things that you said is that you were max long, despite being of a bearish temperament, because you had come to the conclusion that the, the Fed support of markets wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. And so you had somewhat cynically arrived at a, not necessarily levered long, but, but aggressively long. I, I, I do believe you used the terminology levered long then. Aggressively long take on markets. Um, and I, I should have gone with you there. I did not. Uh, but but uh, have, have you maintained that belief or has something changed there? No, that was always, a, I'll call it a, 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 a trading view based on where the narrative is. You know, this is the stuff that I like to write about. It's, it's, and what I mean by narrative is not sentiment or using nice words or mean words. I mean, what's the script? What's the story arc? That's, that's what I mean when I, when I talk about narrative. We talk about being a narrative archetype. And more and more in this world, and by this world, I mean a world of 24-7, uh, quote-unquote, news media. And I say, quote-unquote, because it's not news. It's, it's an opinion that is presented as news, right? whether you're talking about 
CNN or Fox or MSNBC, but also if you're talking about the uh, uh, investment programming, CNBC, Bloomberg. Uh, most publications today, most content publications today are in fact 24 seven, again, quote unquote, news organizations. So that's Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, all of these, they, they are 24 seven presenters of content. And so what I try to focus on is what is the story arc that is being presented to us and where are we in that story arc? So if you're familiar, and this is actually gonna go, we'll come back to not gonna make it and where I think the Fed is and where I think we are in markets, but it's kind of starting in the second piece that you were talking about earlier, Brandon, the, the, the note I wrote about the, the MacGuffin. And the reason it, I think starts there is that a MacGuffin, this is a word that comes out of Hollywood, right? So famously, it was Alfred Hitchcock, when they were asking about his movies, he said, well, you know, here's how I construct the plot. Then, you know, of course, you have to have a MacGuffin. And the person said, a MacGuffin, what's that? And apparently, it links to some old Scottish joke. But as Hitchcock explained it, a MacGuffin is the object of desire. MacGuffin is the object of desire. So as, as Hitchcock said, you know, in a, in a spy movie, it'll be the papers. In a heist movie, it'll be the jewels or the gold. In a, you know, romantic comedy, you know, the MacGuffin will be the relationship, right? So it's, it, there's, whatever movie you watch, there's a very specific structure to it. It's a three-act play, rising action, falling action, insertion of the MacGuffin at certain points in time. Just, you know, Google three-act play plus whatever movie you like, and you'll see someone's made the structure of, available for you to look at. It's exactly the same thing in markets. There are plots, story arcs, scripts that we tell ourselves over and over and over again. Probably, I think, the most impactful script for the last 10 years has been the Fed's got your back. Fed has got your back. If the Fed is uh, dovish at its core and committed to this easy money, dovish um, policy, set of policies. That reached, I think it's apotheosis, frankly, in the days right after COVID. And then coming out of that was what we've seen well, since um, you know the early last year, we started writing about it. Sorry, it was clear, the middle of last year. And that's just the, the embedded inflationary environment that we have today. So once the Fed acknowledged that yes, inflation is embedded and that we have to address this, that it's not transitory. And so that was in November of last year. That changed the story arc, that changed the script. And we went from the script of the Fed's got your back, it's liquidity forever, liquidity uber alles. It went from that to, nope, Fed's gotta be hawkish. More importantly, the script became the Fed should be hawkish. It moved from, you know, we analyze these things about whether it's a descriptive narrative, this is what the Fed is doing, or a prescriptive narrative. It's a slightly different plot. It's a pl slightly different script. 
And so that's what we saw changing last fall. And so, you know, to your original question, right, is that still the attitude that I have? It's flipped entirely. And it's flipped entirely because we are no longer in a plot, a story arc of the Fed's got your back. But we're now in the, the plot, the story arc of the Fed has to crush inflation. And that's, I, I wish it weren't the case, right? But, but we, we have to deal with what is, not what we hope will be or you know, what, we, what we think you know, the fundamentals say. We have to deal with what is. And I got to tell you, Brandon, that is what is today. It's a, it's a sea change in what the, the story arc uh, that we're following. So let's take a deep dive into NGMI, not going to make it your long yeah. piece on the Fed. You note that at Epsilon Theory, it was clear that inflation was, was here in early 2021. In the NGMI piece, you have multiple direct quotes from the Fed in the first half of 2021, where they're denying that inflation is a potential issue. Yep. You note that the Fed was still denying inflation as a as a serious issue or, or one that required immediate attention in late summer of 2021. And it wasn't until uh, November of 2021 that, that they truly changed tone. Um, a couple things happened for a possible change in tone. One is that politics were sort of out of the way for Jerome Powell. He didn't have to worry about being renominated. And then, um, and then two, kind of in the late summer, inflation flared up as a political issue and you started seeing polling about inflation being a major concern of the populace and, and the politics changed quite a bit and quite suddenly. Um, how, do you, how do you see it? Uh, what, what caused the change in the Fed? And I just, I just wanna note for, for background for people, um, I do think it is kind of remarkable looking backwards that you and others were pointing out in February, 2021, that we were going into an inflationary world. What, what more do you wanna see? Em employment is high, markets are super speculative, inflation is already showing its head and shows no sign of slowing down supply chains are troubled like what more do you want to see in terms of the inflationary front and and from february 1 until the present the fed added more than one and a half trillion onto its balance sheet like after it had already been obvious that inflation was yeah. a problem yeah. and yet as you point out in ngmi they're at every turn from february into the summer denying that inflation is an oh. issue now do you think that the fed pivot was related to the renomination or is it just the politics, the public is voicing their concern and the Fed has to act? I don't think it was related to the renomination. I really, I, re I really don't. And, and I'm going to, I, I think that what the Fed was doing was what I see so many long only investment managers doing. And that is ultimately you just have to hope that the market bails you out. So let me, let me explain a bit more about what I mean by that. So 
you know, when I, when I ran my hedge fund, which was a long short fund, meaning I can control how, whether I'm kind of, you know, betting with or against the market. Right? And I think most of your listeners are familiar what we mean by a long short strategy. Yeah, it means that I'm betting for some things to go up and some things to go down. And so my net exposure, meaning the balance of those long and short positions I have, you know, most long short hedge funds actually run their, their net, actually run their book at pretty, pretty long, right? A, a typical long short hedge fund is anywhere from 50 to 70% net long. Most of them, when they say, oh yeah, we do shorts, it's, it's kind of a sideline for them. Right. Because markets typically go up over time. <laughs> yeah, and they, they, their lifetime earnings, provided that the fund survives downturns, should be much higher if they can bias towards being very long. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, the hedge fund I ran, and, you know, is part of it's being lucky with your timing. Other of it is just kind of the way you're wired. I'm wired to be a short seller. I see the flaw in all things. I mean, it's just, it's that's not a, Trust me, that's a bug, not a feature, right? <laughs> you see the world that way. And, uh, and it does detract from your lifetime earnings, right? You're absolutely right about that, Brandon. But, you know, my long short fund, you know, away, we were running, I think, 10% net long. We made a ton of money in, 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 in OA. Um, most managers, though, even long short, most managers don't have that option to go short. They have to be, you're fully invested in the market, a mutual fund investor. You're not short. You're never short. You're fully invested in the market. You're 100% net long. And like I say, even long short, even hedge fund managers are typically biased to the long side. They really are. And so what happens when the world changes? What happens when the world changes? And, and to be clear, I think this is one of those rare maybe not once a century changes, but it's once every 50 years. It's a multi-decade shift to go from a profoundly deflationary world to the barge totally turning around and you're now in an inflationary world with inflationary expectations. I think that's what's happened. And so when that happens, right, whether you're in, you see this all the time, like say with, with, with portfolio managers, the world changes, you do what you do, because from a business perspective, from that lifetime earnings perspective you're mentioning, it makes all the sense to, to take this approach. But here you are and you're down, you're down. And you think, holy shit, I, I am really, I am really mispositioned, <laughs> I, You know, if I'm a long short guy, I'm way kind of way too long. But I've told all my investors, these are the positions I really believe in. This is what I do, blah, blah, blah. If you're a mutual fund manager, you're saying, no, 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 I've, I've made my active weights. These are the stocks I've selected within my universe of long only. I've told all my investors, this is what I do, blah, blah, blah. And so you're stuck. You're stuck. You can't admit defeat. You can't crystallize a loss or you'll be out of the job you'll be out of the job. So what you do is you say, okay, I'm stuck. And so what I got to do is I got to hope that the market bails me out. I'm down 10% here in June. I got to hope that 
the rest of the year turns around and the market bails me out. And here's the thing, Brandon, it usually does. The market really does usually bail you out. I think that was exactly the position that Powell and the Fed found themselves in in the summer when it was clear to anybody with half a brain. And these guys have got gals, they all have half a brain. They've all got big brains. This, this is not a question of brain power. <laughs> it's a question of, in the Fed's case, 20 plus years of a one-way bet of designing everything and saying everything and not wanting to take the L. What happened was, to your point, when it became that political issue in the late summer, and when it was clear that the market was not going to bail them out, and by market, I mean the world, when it was clear that, in fact, oh, you know, the supply chains aren't going to unsnarl themselves magically. Oh, you know, there, there are wage and price pressures now being embedded in everyday life. Oh, I guess services prices are going to catch up to goods prices. Oh, gosh, that's unfortunate. These are all things that could have gone the other way. It's possible. The market could have bailed the Fed out, and they could have seen signs that it was transitory. And then they would have said, see, told you. And we could all go on and it would, you know, the White House wouldn't be, you know, looking at what they're looking at in the midterms. The Fed could be going on and all be well. But by November, it's clear that A, the market's not going to bail you out and it's getting worse. And at that point, again, for, poli for political reasons, you've got to take the L and you've got to change everything about your policy. And that's what they've done since. So I don't think it was kind of, you know, what do I mean by, by it's about politics? It's about the White House has to have the heavy. Again, it's a plot. It's, it's, it's the classic you know, plot in any sort of movie. You've got to have the heavy. You've got to have not the fall guy, but you've got to have the person who can take the heat for taking these sort of steps that are required. And that's what the Fed does. So, you know, that's how the story changed. I really don't think it was because, you know, of renomination pressures or they weren't smart enough to see it. They were just hoping that the market would bail them out. Just like every long only manager has done since the beginning of time, when, you know, they get to summertime, they get to early, get to June and they're down. <laughs> they can't change. They can't take the L. They just want to get bailed out. So one of the things that's remarkable about the uh, Fed quotes in your NGMI piece is that in this inflationary episode, the Fed kept saying essentially that they, they weren't going to act until they saw the whites of the eyes of inflation. <laughs> and this is, this is opposite of the conventional wisdom of, of banking policy. You talk a lot about uh, inflation expectations and the kind of stuff that Larry Summers has been talking about. Um, what led the Fed to throw away what they used to know, that monetary policy operates with the lag, that you have to operate yeah. quickly because by the time you see it, it's way too late? Like, what led them to forget all of this information? It wasn't forgetting, Brandon. It was, um, again, they've got big brains. And this gets to the 
why I titled the note NGMI, not going to make it. Because in exactly the same way that taking interest rates down to the zero bound, ZERP, zero interest rate policy, in exactly the same way that having phenomenally low interest rates did not encourage inflation, which was the goal, right? The goal was to encourage inflation in the real economy. That's why they took interest rates down. That's why they did QE. That's why they took on all this extraordinary policy, both here and in Europe, Japan as well. All of this was designed to try to spur inflation in the real economy, and it did not happen. In exactly the same way that taking rates down to zero from a normalized rate, whatever that normal, call it, you know, three and a half percent. Yeah, Fed funds rate, the very short term of the curve, Fed funds rate of three and a half percent. Let's say they call that normal. I actually think it's more like four percent. Let's call four percent normal. They had zero impact on encouraging inflation in the real economy by taking interest rates down from 4% to zero. My strong belief is that they're going to have zero impact in the real economy on curbing inflation on the other way, by raising interest rates from zero to 4%. They're going to have to get short-term interest rates. I'm not talking about the 10-year. I'm talking about the Fed funds rate. I'm talking about the overnight rate. They're going to have to get that to 4% before their monetary policy has an impact on inflation, on the real economy and these inflationary pressures. There was a place where taking rates from 4% down to zero had a big impact. It wasn't the real economy. It was the market economy. It was financial assets. We had the greatest bull market in maybe the history of the world, certainly the history of the last hundred years, by taking interest rates down like that. The inflation we saw was not in the real economy. It was in the financial economy, the financial assets. And so what they know and what we are experiencing is that raising interest rates like they're doing right now, it's not having any impact on the real world, right? We're still at eight and a half percent or whatever it is, not having an impact. Where it's having the impact is on market world. And look, again, these, these are not dumb people, and they know that. And the political implications of tanking the stock market are, you know, in today's world, probably as bad as tanking the real economy with a recession. So they didn't want to do it. I understand why they hoped that the market would bail them out and they could kind of kick this problem down the road. But the market didn't bail them out. And so now here we are. A lot to unpack there. I would start by saying that I agree with you that increasing interest rates is not likely to bring down inflation. I think one of the things that happened is that through zero interest rate policy, you uh, you actually serve to have overcapacity, which brings down inflation. If you take one example like Uber, okay? Uber gets flooded with money basically because of ZERP. And not only that, but all of their competitors get flooded with money. And it leads to everyone being able to take uh, $10 black cars wherever they want to go, right? And not having to even have a car because it's cheaper to have someone drive you in a fancy car than it is to have your own car, right? 
And then Nail on the head, Brandon, it, it, it ends up with a perverse because the relationship between the price of money and monetary policy and inflation, it's not linear, right? The first note I wrote on this is about, it's about, you know, a song of ice and fire, you know, off, off the, um, you know, the Game of Thrones, uh, you know, title of one of those books. There's so many phenomena in our world the natural world, the social world, that are not linear. One of them is water. So water, as you expect anything, you know, it gets denser as it gets colder. So that's why, you know, you jump into a lake or a pool, cold water's down at the bottom. It's warmer at the top. At about 37 degrees Fahrenheit, though, and this is magic. That relationship changes. That relationship changes. So that by the time you get to nearly freezing water, water that's just over 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts to become lighter. It goes to the surface. All life on Earth is possible because of this property of water. Because ice does not form at the bottom of a lake or an ocean, it forms at the top. It shouldn't, right? As things get colder, as the molecules slow down, they should become denser, it should sink. But water has this amazing property as a weirdness of the way that the H2O molecule is actually bent and the valences of the atoms here. So that as it reaches its state change of close to freezing, it gets lighter. And because of that, life here is possible on earth. Because if, if ice formed at the bottom of a lake and went up, all the fish would die. All life would die in that lake, in that pond. So because of that weird nonlinear property of water, we're alive. And money is the same thing, to exactly your point. Once you get close to the, the zero bound, where money becomes free, then you get all of this terrible behavior, which I kind of lump into the category, let's call it financialization, an overly financialized uh, world, where companies now, you don't borrow money. If you're in the VC world, you're not raising money for, I'll call it productivity. In the public markets, you're raising money to financialize, to give another return of leverage, to buy back your stock, to do a bigger dividend, because the money's free. Why wouldn't you do that? You're not investing in property, plant, and equipment. You're not investing in you know, new technology, a new factory, anything like that. Why would you? Why would you take actual risk with your money when you can get a risk-free return through financialization. So you're absolutely right, Brandon. It had the opposite effect <laughs> that I've intended with taking interest rates down, the price of money down to this insanely low level. And I really do believe their brains are big enough to understand that until they get back to a normalized level, which is something like three and a half percent, maybe 4%, I don't know what it is. But until you get there, all it's going to do is crush all of those valuations and financialization effects 
that we saw over the last 12 years in both public and private markets. It's going to impact the purely story stocks, story companies, infinite duration, right? Like a, a Tesla is a good example, right? But it's going to impact those guys the worst, but it comes for all of us eventually. And it gets cashed out in the multiples in both private and public markets get squeezed. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. You place a lot of importance on narrative. There was a subtle shift in narrative around the beginning of this year where certain like historical spokespeople for the Fed, like a William Dudley or someone like that, they started, they started signaling that the Fed would be okay with wealth destruction because it would serve their aims of overall aggregate demand destruction and also probably improving aggregate supply as people who had entered retirement early came out of retirement. So, so th there was that sort of subtle narrative shift. Do you, do you think that that's like here, here to stay a bit? Is, is the markets as political utility kind of put on the back burner for a moment? So when I, when I think that the, with the, you're, you're absolutely right in saying that there was all this thing, oh yeah, we wouldn't, you know, it's, it's okay. We don't, we don't care what the stock market does, you know, all, the, all this, this, this kind of, um, I'll call it malarkey. That, that was a, that'd be a grandfather world word to use. That'd be a Joe Biden word to use, right? Malarkey. <laughs> they said this because once you start taking liquidity out of the system, I'll come back and I'll use a crypto example here in a second to, if people are more familiar with that. But when the tide goes out, when liquidity is being taken away from the system, the old analogy we used was, you know, taking the punch bowl away, which is also kind of from another, another place in time, right? Taking, what the hell's a punch bowl? But, you know, take the punch bowl. The price of everything goes down the price of everything goes down. And it's going to be most visible in public markets, right? Because you see it every day. So when, you know, these Fed missionaries were saying, oh yeah, we're fine with it. They're saying they're fine with it because it was going to happen. <laughs> it was going to happen. And so you want to say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew, we, we knew this. We're, we're in favor of this thing that's going to happen. Uh, and it's the way to, I, I don't think it's possible to get away from the political utility that markets have become. I just don't think it is possible because we've been so well trained over the past decade that this is what happens. And frankly, Brandon, this is what scares me the most about what happens next. Because to answer your question directly, this is not a mean reverting phenomenon. This is, this is, these are 40 year barge journeys. Right? <laughs> it was 40 years of deflationary pressures and increasing liquidity. And is it going to be 40 years in the other direction? Yeah, probably not, right? Is it, could it be 10 years? Absolutely. One year is going to feel like a lifetime. 
five years, three years, five years, you're going to, you're, you're just going to want to throw up every morning. And I do think this does get cashed out in politics. That's what gives me the most concern, Brandon. I, look, there's a happy story that I could make here, right? We go back to normalized interest rates where there is a risk-free rate, three and a half percent, four percent, something like that. So that if you borrow money, you've got to do it for something. Oh, I've, I've got to do something with this money in the real economy. I, I can't just buy back my stock or you know announce a dividend with borrowed money. I've got to actually build something, got to make something, got to hire people. Productivity, I think, will actually go up. Because that's been the story for the last decade. It's, it's been... This has been the longest stretch the last 12 years of anemic productivity growth in the history of the United States. The history of the United States. Worst, worst, worst decade, worst period for, for productivity growth. It's not a coincidence that that's happened over this period of time. So I think the, 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 the happy story I can, the, the only happy story I can present here is that we find a way to grow our way out of this. How do you grow? You go through productivity increases. You grow through capital use that actually is used to make things in the real economy. That's my hope. That's the good scenario. My fear though, Brandon, is that this does get cashed out in politics, that we are not able to see our way through to a reset, on financial wealth and financial assets in this country, in this world, that we're not able to go back to or recapture productivity growth, real economic growth, but that instead we descend into the madness of either, <laughs> I use this word advisedly, but I really see it, you know, fascist policies, right, on either the left or the right. It, could, it can and absolutely come in either direction. And that's what I get scared about when I say that this can get cashed out in politics, because it really sucks. The middle class gets wiped out with, this, with inflation, absolutely wiped out. You're seeing it happening right now. Credit card balances are going up faster than they have ever gone up, ever. We are all feeling stretched and stressed and against a backdrop of a recession that is going to happen. And the political consequences of that, you get the strong man who rides in on the horse. So in terms of the politics, um, let me set that aside for one moment because I want to sure. give you my counter to why the Fed to me, seems likely to go back into easing mode at some point. I want to hear what okay. your reply to this. So, yep. so my take is that something that's consistently neglected in analysis of Fed policy is that it's really congressional spending decisions that are in the driver's seat. And the Fed is a passenger. The Fed is left as the only person to fund the desired level of government expenditure and there's nothing about high deficit expenditure that's likely to change over the next decade, right? Demographics are not in our favor. Um, it just looks sort of set in stone that especially with a, with a slowdown, 
we're going to run 1.5 to as high as $5 trillion deficits like per year over the next decade. A, a slowdown would be catastrophic for government finances, we can agree. Um, and so our trading partners don't really want to fund these deficits. Um, individuals and institutions don't really want to fund them. We're probably going to continue with the way that we've done it, which is the Fed funds it, right? And and so I kind of feel like the Fed is not credible at this point because we are going to have a replay of sort of September 2019 uh, repo crisis, the, the overwhelming amounts of government debt just gum up the banking system and the Fed has to step in and, and, and buy it. Like we know that at the end of the day, we're going to monetize our debt, our desired high deficit expenditures. Doesn't that cause a Fed reversal and cause the Fed to lose credibility in the infl inflation fight? Yeah, I hear you on all that. Um, I think though, that so long as the United States is able to fund itself, then the kind of by proxy monetization that the Fed does, which is to take the deficit print, and that money goes into reserves, where you're kind of locking it away. <laughs> Right in the in in, in in bank reserves, I actually think that can work. I think that can work pretty well because so long as that money stays in the reserves and it's not lent out into the real economy, that is nowhere near. I think the inflationary driver that money in the real economy is right because what you're describing. The Fed by proxy monetizing debt, enormous deficits. That that hasn't changed, right? That that's been true for the last decade with zero, you know, with 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 no inflation out there. What changed was when money gets out into the real economy. With PPP, right? With the Fed continue to expand its own balance sheet, meaning what it owns, the stuff it buys, continuing to expand that. And yes, the COVID policies, the, you know, sending whatever the amount of the check was to every man, woman, and child in the United States. And the supply chain stuff and, you know, and the Ukraine, it's all true. That's what, you know, Hemingway asking me, asking about religions, which one he says, it's all true. <laughs> it's all true. But I think that that specific mechanism you described can keep on going like it's been going on for the last, you know, 20 years of crazy deficit spending here in the U.S., fiscal spending. So long as the U.S. can fund itself. Meaning as long as, to your point, there are buyers for the treasuries that the U.S. government issues. If other countries and blocks had their act together, Brandon, I would be much more concerned about what you're describing. But so long as the United States is the best house in a bad neighborhood, which we clearly are, we clearly are, 
then I think that the United States will be able to continue funding itself. And so that that's not the vector of a collapse that keeps me up at night, what you just described. I think it's very true what you described. And I can imagine the world changing, going down a path where what you just described could end up being the powder keg that blows everything up. Because that's what those bank reserves are. They're, they're basically, it's, it's, it's nitroglycerin, but you're pumping it deep underground and you're hoping it never comes out you know, into the real economy. And as so long as you can handle that, and one way of handling that is continuing to pay the banks, you, you know, we, we the people, we the United States, we pay the banks interest on those reserves. And we do that in no small part to make it profitable for the banks to keep them there, keep it there, and not get it out into the real economy, particularly into the financial world. And when you speak of the politics deteriorating, do you, do you see it as bad leaders coming in, or do you see it as Congress maybe goes crazy with some stimulus programs that will indeed be inflationary, or do you see it more with like an Occupy Wall Street sort of flavor where the original impetus for Occupy Wall Street was the bank bailouts and the immediate feeling that basically Congress could have gone one of two ways. They could have bailed out the banks who had their bad behavior and bad consequences, or they could have bailed out homeowners and home speculators that had their own bad decisions and their own bad consequences. And and the decision was made sort of to bail out the banks, but do nothing for the homeowners. Um, Do you see it more as like a Occupy Wall Street type of flavor? Now, Occupy never, never got much momentum behind it at the end, but do do you see something along those lines? No, no. When I, when I say my fear in politics is the man on the horse, I'm I'm talking about the executive, talking about the executive branch, man or a woman on a horse could be the same, you know, could be either way. And I say it could be on the left, it could be the right. I, I think it, I think it's more obvious when it happens on the right. I think it's just as pronounced as when the man on the horse, you know, it's, 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 it's just as destructive uh, when it's on the left. But I think, I, I think that's, that's my fear. That's my concern. So it's, you know, and this is what, what happens. So the, you know, you need, you want to elect a man with a plan and it's always a strong, a, a strong man. And the political leaders that bring this person forward, they always think that ultimately, oh, we can control him or her. And they can't. They can't. I I think you don't have to look too far, right, in the Republican Party to see an example of what I'm describing. What I'm saying is it can get worse. What I'm saying is it can get worse. And when inflation destroys a middle class, when you have a world that is increasingly one of haves and have-nots, when you have massive wealth inequalities that is in your face all the time, then you get the man on the horse. 
and it's it's not that Congress is going to go one way or another. My my big issue with is that Congress will just go with it. They'll be as gridlocked as ever. They will, and I and I understand it because if you are a political entrepreneur today, you you this is an opportunity for you. It's not an obstacle for you. It's an opportunity for you to rise in your little world, whether that's your red world or whether that's a blue world. There's no, there's no in-between here. And again, the, my concern is this is not a mean reverting phenomenon. This is not something that just naturally gets better on its own. This is true for when we're talking about monetary policy, whether we're in an inflationary world or a deflationary world. It's true for the political cycles of moving you know, towards more authoritarianism or away from it. And I think we're moving clearly towards it. And there's no you know, $10 word equilibrium here other than a competitive one. Now, do you see some positive consequences, political or otherwise, to having this long-term asset bubble deflate? A bit. All of the positives that I can identify, which is a leavening of the wealth inequalities, and more importantly, a return to productivity growth in the United States, and with the corporate sector using capital to do productive things in the real economy, that's incredibly positive. It, 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 it is the path to get out of this mess, economically and politically. It is the path. This is the way. My concern, though, is if you don't have a political class, if you don't have political entrepreneurs who are encouraging to stay on that path, and I don't think we do, then it's very easy for other political entrepreneurs, of which I think we have in abundance, to say, ah, it's not working fast enough. This isn't happening. We have to go after these bad guys. Our, our man or woman on the horse is going to fight the other side because that, that's what we see today. So you, you disagree with somebody politically today it's not a, a disagreement. They are bad people. I will take gun control as an example. The attitude today, the pervasive script and story arc today, if you're on the Democrat team, is that it's not that the Republicans disagree with you on gun control. They are bad people. They have blood on their hands. All this crap, right, that, that you see today. And it, and it's true. I'll pick another example, and we'll talk about how, you know, if you're on team Republicans, you see the Democrats as not just being, okay, we disagree on this, and, you know, I really think I'm right, but, you know, I really think I'm right. No, no, no. You're bad people. <laughs> and how do you compromise with a bad person? You don't. You have to defeat them. You have to beat them. You have to have victory over them and put them down. And that's where we are. That's where we are politically and why I 
have a lot of concerns that the, the positive aspects of getting rid of this insanely over-leveraged, financialized market world that we're in today, that we won't see it through, that we won't see it through. It seems likely to me that, that we won't see it through, but I, I don't have strong- I'm not gonna make it. <laughs> not gonna make it. Um, do you have a, a, a read on, on Powell? And if we, if we go back basically second half of 2018, he was, he was tough on inflation, markets were going down. Then there was the somewhat mysterious pivot of, of early 2019 and then yeah. repo crisis. And, and then lately, uh, well, clearly he was uh, <clears throat> quite stimulative, stubbornly so during COVID times. And then now flip, flip to a hawkish version of Powell. Who is Powell? What is his real, what is his real persona? persona? Powell, Jay Powell is an investment banker uh, who is, you know, personally worth well over a hundred million dollars. And I, I say that only half, or I don't say that facetiously at all. You ask who he is, he is that. That is who Jay Powell is. Jay Powell, like most people who've had a career in New York and Washington and are centimillionaires and have had positions of power, they and are of a certain age. Their issue is how am I going to be remembered? And um, Jay Powell does not want to be remembered as the person who allowed inflation to be unleashed on the world. Stopping inflation in its tracks like this is who Jay Powell is, both institutionally and uh, by personality. Jay Powell is, I'll call him a, a creature of capital. With a, with a capital C. He is a captain of capital with a capital C. Institutionally, the Federal Reserve exists in service to capital. And I'm saying that as a capitalist. I am not a Marxist or a raving lunatic. I'm saying that myself as a capitalist. These are institutions that serve the interest of capital. And that is who Jay Powell is. And that is what Jay Powell will do. <laughs> so so that's, that's my answer to your question. Now, to pivot for a moment to the MacGuffin reader and, and crypto, yeah. uh, you've talked about how crypto has been co-opted, essentially, and has become a part of the financialization structure, become a part of the Wall Street Absolutely. power structure. You think that it, it no longer does what it was supposed to do, what it started out to do, which was to be an alternative to, to state currency. I don't, I don't know what it started out to do, Brandon. I, I, I mean, to my, my, my phrase is always that I think Bitcoin, and I'll, we can talk about crypto more broadly. We can talk about decentralized finance. You know, all these things I'm very in favor of. But at, at the bottom line for me is that what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is good art. And I say that 
as my highest possible praise. It's elegant, it's clever, it inspires, it does what art should do. Bitcoin is good art. You know, I was like, I think that's what we human beings are put on this earth to do, to make good art. Bitcoin is beautiful art, it's elegant art. Want to connect myself with is that ethos of good art and the notion of autonomy, of entrepreneurialism, of independence, of long time horizons. All of these are aspects of, I'll call it the OG Bitcoin ethos, the art of Bitcoin. I am all in on that. What has happened though, and I wrote about this years ago, and it just is what always happens in the world of financial innovation. Financial innovation is one of two things. It's a new way to securitize something or it's a new way to leverage something. That's it. With the possible exception of the ATM. Right? That's the only financial innovation that wasn't a way of, to securitize something or to leverage something. And that's why I refer to what Bitcoin has become is not Bitcoin, but I, I call it you know, Bitcoin with jazz hands, Bitcoin, TM. It's a story. It's the same story. It's the same way that Wall Street transformed gold, which had a very specific meaning and use and art of its own, into GLD, into a security. So it's the, the securitization of Bitcoin and then the use of Bitcoin, the securitized Bitcoin as a funding mechanism for all of the shit coins and these different crypto projects that have corrupted both efforts, both the OG Bitcoin ethos as well as the decentralized finance ethos. To the point where now I, I don't know if there's any there there anymore. And there is no there there so long as you've got you know guys like Novogratz running around or the you know the Winkle V and you know SBF running. I mean <laughs> those are the guys that I mean by Wall Street. They are Wall Street. And there ain't nothing there, as far as I'm concerned, that is anything more than the creation of. McGuffins on top of McGuffins, objects of desire on top of objects of desire to try to encourage flow. Because that is how Wall Street works, my friend. It ain't about the price, it's about the flow. I mean, your SBF, you try with Alameda to do something with both price and flow. But you know, the the, the big money, the money in Wall Street is never about price, it's always about flows. You just want to be in the middle of these flows and take a little piece from both sides. That's what Wall Street always is. People always miss this. They think it's about that, that you know, people in Wall Street care whether something goes up or down in price. We don't care, right? The money is in the flows. And that to me is what so much of crypto has become. Bankman Fried is an interesting case because yeah. I wouldn't lump yeah. SBF with Winklevi or Novogratz. I would say that culturally, SBF is a 
similar to like a crypto OG. Like he, he is a, a hardcore crypto guy that with success became sort of co-opted by what you would call the treasury panopticon, right? Like, uh, correct. correct. It happens slowly I, I, with time. I, look, 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 I agree. There, there are lots of paths <laughs> that one can take to the, to the end point of, you know, being the man, <laughs> right? And, uh, and honestly, to me, it's a little, it's, it's a little more, it's a little sadder, right? When that's the path, but that is the path. That's one of the paths. But I agree. I, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, he's a charming dude. I, I mean, I, 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 there's nothing. Anyway, yes, I agree. I agree with you on both you know, where he was. And I think we agree on where institutionally he is now. One thing that I find interesting when you say that Powell represents capital with capital C, I, I always find that there's like an interesting type of Wall Street character that has basically made a fortune either very quickly or somewhat quickly as a result of financialization, uh, leverage, easy monetary policy. Like they've sort of ridden this inflationary wave to sort of where they want to be. And, and then they're like, after they have the money in the bank, they're sort of like, all right, let's stop this inflation train now. <laughs> let's, like, we didn't know, we don't want wages to go up. Let's, let's get inflation to zero. I want to preserve my purchasing power forevermore and for, all of the future generations, but no one else can participate. Let's stop right now. And that kind of feels like this moment in time in a way. It sure does. And, and, and you see this at every moment in time, right? You saw it in, uh, you know, Q4 of 2018, you know, to your point about when Powell was raising rates and all these people who were saying, oh, no, 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 you, you or all that, that for years have been saying, oh, this is terrible, the zero interest rate policy. And then when we have a bear market because Powell's raising rates, they're saying, wait, 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 I, I, I didn't think you actually meant it would impact my money. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think the, you know, the face-eating leopard would eat, would, would, would eat my face. <laughs> no, 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 you got to stop that now. You got to stop that now. This is a great story. It's... Um, you know, apocryphal for, uh, for, for, for St. Augustine. And, uh, you know, the line was, oh, Lord, make me chaste, but not quite yet. <laughs> right? so I think having a, a lot of people, you know, profess their, their, their desire to be chaste. And, uh, but then when, you know, they're actually faced with what that means, they say, oh, oh, Lord, not quite yet. <laughs> now crypto in the upcycle they they tried to make some political friends to find some political friends and crypto was never likely to have any political friends because it's in competition as a currency and the government needs to fund itself through inflation uh, the government is not served by having young people transact in in bitcoin um, so it was always unlikely to find political friends, but it was, it was trying hard. Uh, did it succeed in finding any political friends? I, I, I yeah. assume I know the answer, yeah. but 
Yeah, absolutely. Because because you'd be amazed at um, how cheap it is to buy a friend in Washington. <laughs> so you know, as money comes, your ability to find friends in Washington it's it's amazing how that works out. And look, I don't I don't begrudge crypto the industry any of that, but it's just again they are becoming the man. It doesn't have political friends to the extent that anyone is looking to any sort of crypto bailout, no matter how bad it gets. If we fast forward and Bitcoin's at 6,000, no, like right, there's, there's nothing, right, right, right. No, one, no one's going out of their way to help their crypto industry. It didn't, it didn't really succeed in making friends. No, 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 no. They're absolutely right. Because, and that's what I mean by being a, a captain of capital with a capital C. I mean, that's what the Fed is. The Fed is there for the banks. The, the, the Fed is not there to regulate the bank. The Fed is there for the banks. And you mentioned, you know, what came out of, of 08, what came out of the, the first Obama administration, something I'll never forgive him for. I voted, I voted for Obama to, to, to burn it the fuck down with it being Wall Street. I voted for change. And what I got was the most profoundly conservative president, little c conservative president, in you know the last 80 years, I guess. Because to the point you made earlier, there was a conscious decision made that here we have an opportunity to rebank to remake the banking system. And instead the decision was made to recreate, to 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 strengthen it, to reinstitute it. Those opportunities come around once a century, if that, that opportunity is gone. So you're absolutely right. There is no, you know, there is no tarp for tether, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Or three arrows or, or you know, anyone. There, there's, or, or Gemini, right? There's, there's no tarp for Gemini. As fast as Gemini would like to run towards being in the club, they're not in the club. They won't ever be in the club, I don't think. So you're right that the that the friends that are made are not the friend are are the are the kind of the the political friends on the surface. What happened in 09, late 08 going into 09, what happened there was not political friendship. What you saw there was the political sinews, right? That wasn't the skin. That was the, the pleasant skin of politics was pulled off to reveal the naked sinews of power beneath. That, you know, it's a different kind of political uh, friendship, let's say. You talked about this 40 year barge that we've had where financial assets have gone up, let's call it 10% a year while real GDP is going up, say, 3, 3% a year, compounded over many years. Now, now we have financial wealth doing very well, real wealth somewhat less well. Now, by knocking down financial, financial wealth, aren't we sort of destroying some of that built-up inflationary impetus that was there? Uh, it, it seemed, it's always seemed like with asset prices being at such high levels, you you were always going to have trouble if people tried to convert the financial assets to real assets in mass. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that that that's true. And as you know, I mentioned this earlier that, that when liquidity comes out of a system, whatever that system is, then the price of everything in that system it just goes down. I, I mean, so you know, for me, I mean, you're clearly seeing liquidity come out of the crypto system, and so all the prices are going to come down. Where that kind of liquidity tide going out stops, I have no idea. I have no idea. But whenever you're looking at a market system, whether it's stocks or stonks, right? Or crypto or uh, private equity or MEZ or VC, I keep coming back to this and it's the hardest thing to see, it's all about the flows. It's all about the flows. And I think if you keep your eye on that, if you want to be a player in one of these markets, you got to keep your eye on that. That's, 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 my, that's my advice, right? And, you know, yeah. it, it, in terms of how one should think about these. It's, it's, it, it's so easy to always be looking at the technicals, the prices and stuff like that. My advice is look at the flows. And that'll give you a better sense of how kind of how things are going. Reading between the lines, it seems that you're quite bearish for crypto and other high risk assets. And we seem to be in that moment in time with crypto yes. where people are hunting now for areas of vulnerability and they're likely to find them and attack them quite quickly as they discover them. Correct. And it's that process sometimes takes months, but it will probably go in somewhat accelerated fashion in the crypto space so that we'll hear about new pockets of vulnerability week by week, if not day by day. Absolutely right. I mean, when Luna Terra went, that meant that the staking model, right? The yield farming model, it's gone. It, it is dead, right? It, it is, it, it, it's a chicken with its head cut off. The chicken may run around for a while, but you should think of that as, thank God, because that gives me time to get out, right? Both to get out if you've got money in, but more importantly, right? What I look at are all the, the people I know, the friends I know who have gone into this ecosystem for their living. And I get it, right? It's, it's exciting. There is underneath an idea of actually building something. It's... I guess who I'm speaking to right now is not so much people you've got your account or whatever, you know, and you're trading it. I'm talking about the people who are actually working in this, who've made a career decision, who've made this career investment into this. I think one of the lines I like to use is that if you're in the financial world, you always have to be looking for your next job. That's my advice to everyone I meet right, in, this, in this business. You should always be looking for your next job. One thing that stuck with me from a Charles Morris book of the 90s was Disaster Follows the MBAs by two years. And that, that fall, falls true with crypto as well. Once one of these models breaks, it doesn't just stop there. And if you are in a business, if it is your job that is tied to one of these models, then you need to you need to be aware of that 
you just don't want to be the sucker at the table, right? I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to jump ship or, you know, leave the game, but it's, you know, you have so many poker players here. It's, you just, you just, you just don't want to be, you have to play the meta game, right? Right. There's, there's a larger game than what you're just playing sitting around the table. It's the meta game of your career in poker, right? Or in or how you're going about that, how you're carrying yourself through that, through the big bets you're making, which are the bets on yourself and your career, not just what you're doing at the table. And, and I think it's the same thing for people who are involved with crypto on the business side. Now, crypto is linked with high growth tech. Their correlation is, yeah. is, is clear. It might break down at some point, but it's, it's there, whether because of market ecology or some other reason. Um, but you made the point earlier that many hedge fund people, they feel the market will bail me out or, the, or they have a strategy of hope that the, that the market yep. will, will bail out. Um, there's been the, the well-publicized sort of arc disaster, but that was always seen as likely to be the first one coming, right? That's had high borrowing rates as a short for quite some time. And, and um, I, I have a, a funny hobby, which is I'm like a 13F watcher. I really enjoy, and I know the perils of being a 13F watcher, but I enjoy that. Um, and it's remarkable to me how much crowding there is in the Tiger Global type positions and how much fashion there is. And also like, this is dating back many years, not, not just in COVID times, but dating back five, six yep. years. Some of the most fashionable tech names, let's just take a Carvana for, for example. Yep. They'll have uh, big hedge funds that will have 20, 30% of their funds in there and never sell, sell a share. Like it, on the face of it, it's insanely irresponsible, but they, they will hold that for, for a period of years. And, um, we might be in the early phases of, of some, uh, liquidation distress cycles, one would think. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Tiger Global and it's, it's an interesting example, I think of what we're talking about because to my, I, my, my strong sense is that what Tiger Global became is just levered equity beta. And, and I think that's what crypto became as well where you depend on that wall of liquidity, that tsunami of liquidity that's just going to go on and on. And when the barge moves around, when the tide starts going out, then um, it's really hard, <laughs> right? Now, the, the response to these things, and this is true whether you're talking about Melvin Capital, this is the response, I think, uh, with SoftBank is the response with Tiger Global is that you try, and, and if, I, if I use these words wrongly, you, you're the one to stop me on this, but you start playing, I'm going to call it big stack poker, meaning you start just trying to bully everyone else on the table. And you can get away with that, right? If, if, if you've got, so for example, with, with, with Tiger Global, and SoftBank does this too, You've got people who are saying, oh, you know, the blooms off the rose with the tech and these, these companies, these valuations, you say, screw that. And you just, you just shove a big stack in to say, no, I'm going to buy out 
you know, at insane valuations, the entire, the entire class of, you know, Israeli tech opportunities, which is kind of what Tiger Global did, you know, a couple of years ago. Just everyone who was there in Israel with a tech idea, Tiger's going to fund you. Mm. <laughs> Take a phone call, Tiger's going to fund you. And SoftBank's famous for doing the same thing too. And you can bully your way through that sometimes. It's kind of another version of hoping that the market bails you out. But in this case, you say, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the story and the narrative myself because I've amassed such a huge stack, such an amount of capital that I can, I can change the dynamic myself. Uh, you know, Gabe Plotkin and Melvin Capital, that's what he did with his short on, 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 on GameStop. I mean, look, I am a short seller. This was my game. This is what I did for a lot of years. And the notion of, I was short GameStop back in, you know, 08, 09, 10, from like $55 a share to 40, maybe even 30. And then I'm out. You know, Melvin Capital was shorting GameStop at $4. And at that point, you're just shorting it to for a bankruptcy. And that is such a hard game to play. Because, again, you made this point earlier, there's always somebody out there looking and say, oh, well, we did this transaction. If we buy them out, we do something like this, it, it, it won't be a bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And the only way to kind of keep that shorting a $4 stock to try to short it into bankruptcy is you just keep putting more and more money into it. You just, you just... Somebody comes in and starts buying, you just shock it all. You just, you just send a big stack in and say, nope, you know, we're shorting, you know, another 100% of the shares. And so I, I think you, you, you often see that in markets where whether it's like Melvin Capital around GameStop, whether it's around uh, Tiger Global and SoftBank around uh, private uh, equities, particularly in the tech space. You see people trying to make their, make their positions good to get back to the times of, of you know, the valuations are always going up because their compensation model is based on that. It, it works. If you just get a couple of years of that to your point of career earnings, right? You make it good. What I'm yeah. saying though, is that when the barge changes and the, the wall of liquidity is going out, ultimately, well, your big stack is nothing compared to the stack that the Fed is bringing to the table. It's just, it's just not. Yeah. And so those sort of business models get crushed, just get crushed. And there's, there's something to the idea that um, the sort of uh, heavy handed buying, pushing out mm -hmm. shorts of late 2020, 2021, it did actually change the ecology so that you had fewer shorts, which tends to be associated with more, more abrupt downturns. We might be seeing some of the consequences now, right? Because shorts would be your natural buyers at moments like this, but there, there are none out there because they were decimated in, in the COVID run-up. That's right. That's exactly and in, in terms of the um, Tiger Globals of the world being levered equity beta, I think that's the, that's a generous interpretation. And then the less generous interpretation, the less generous interpretation is that they're, they're bidding on their own book for the purposes of increasing compensation. Right. As you, as you say, like yes. they, it's, it's kind of a shortcut to success in, in crypto or wall street to have 
bid up your own book with new money coming in or having friends bid on your book or whatever. Um, exactly right. Seem to be a lot of that. Exactly so right. I'm, I'm feeling very selfish about your time. I, I, I'm, I am about to go over time, but I'm wondering if I could ask for uh, 10 minutes to talk about the content space. We thought we might get in there. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you have done quite well at this point in the, in the content space. You have over 125,000 Twitter followers. You have a very active community on EpsilonTheory.com. Um, you have, even before you started with the subscription model at EpsilonTheory.com, you had over 100,000 people on your regular email list. Um, everyone I know reads Epsilon Theory. It's quite a devoted readership that you had before you implemented the subscription model with your Epsilon Theory emails. Um, now at Epsilon Theory, there's a, a, a tiered pricing model where there's free content, there's minimal cost content, and then there's premium content. When you look at the content space today, and let's just take financial Twitter as an example, what do you see as best practices? Because it's truly a fascinating space where no one has the same model. I'll start by saying this. So we, we put up, I'll call it that leaky paywall approach for subscription uh, because the advertising model is just, it's just, it just doesn't work. Yeah, the ad supported model and the corollary to this because ads are kind of like a micro payment. The, the, the micro payments model just doesn't work. I think if you want to make a, a real living at you know, content, provision. And I say that, I say they're, they're kind of linked or related because, um, you know, on the micropayment side, people say, say, oh, well, you know, I, I love, I'll pay for content. I'll pay for content I work, I, I, I use, but I just want to pay kind of as I, as I eat it, you know, as I do it. It's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. People say that, but they, but they actually don't pay. They actually don't pay for content. And similarly on the advertising model, the, a lot of people will not buy a subscription, pay for a subscription, because they rationalize, oh, well, I'm by, you know, by, by looking at your ads, you're getting paid for ads. So I'll, I'll just stay with the free version, the ad supported version. And it makes them feel better, right? Or it makes them feel like they're actually supporting you when there's been such a race to the bottom and all these kind of ad supported models that, you know, it, they're, they're, there's zero money in it. No matter how, you know, if you get multiple millions of people coming to your website, then you can probably make a bit of a go with, a, with an ad-supported model. But even us, I mean, we get like a quarter million unique views, 300,000 unique views per month on our website. That's nothing. That's nothing for, for, for if you're basing any of that on ads. So the first thing I'd say is that, you know, subscription model is the, the way you've got to go if you want to actually make a living providing content, it's gotta be a subscription model of some sort. I think that what Substack is offering now is uh, it's, it's actually pretty good for a content creator in terms of the split, what they're asking for. The problem I've got with, with Substack and all these others is that once you get to again, making a living at this, the 
constraints that their editor and their platform places on you for, I'll say, distinguishing yourself, differentiating yourself, I think puts a lot of limits on growth for you as a, as, as a, as a creator. And that is what is going to drive all of your, all of your subscriptions, all of your subscription growth. How authentic of a voice, how differentiated of a voice are you? Period. There's no room, there's, there's no way to be to make money as an aggregator. There's no money to make room as a, um, oh, I'm going to write, you know, another article about why I like the value proposition at Amazon for fuck's sake, you know, you know, you've, you've got to have a voice and it's got to be authentic. And it's very hard to communicate that sort of authentic voice on these prepackaged platforms like Substack. Now, the, the promise, you mentioned Twitter earlier, the promise of Twitter has always been, oh, I can convert a Twitter reader or viewer into a paid subscriber. And man, that's just, it, that's, it's such a different way of consuming content, at least to the what, you know, to, the, to what I charge subscription on, which is an essay form. Um, I, Twitter is wonderful, I think, for getting reach and recognition and getting people to start the funnel of converting you into a paid subscription but it very rarely converts anyone directly. It, you've, you've really, I, I think we, we're in a world now where there are no real mass audiences, but where the audience you're looking for is a couple of thousand people who really appreciate your voice and are willing to pay a subscription, which is an affinity purchase. That's the other thing about subscriptions. They're affinity purchases. Uh, You've got to put up a paywall. You've got to charge a subscription because I think it's the only way to make money in this business. But um, ultimately, you've got to remember that it's an affinity purchase. I'm sorry, I was just kind of rambling on. What, what, what do you mean by that, that terminology exactly, the affinity purchase? They want to be the type of person who reads or listens to you. They, you, you, you buy the prescription because you, they want to be the type of person who does that. It's, um, you know, we write a lot in Epsilon Theory is the most powerful concept, I think, in game theory, which is the crowd watching the crowd and how that motivates us as individuals. And so you want to encourage, and Twitter can be helpful for this, encourage that feeling of the crowd watching itself and the behavior of the crowd is to subscribe or to read or to be engaged with you, the content creator. I don't have data to back this up, but my strong impression is that if you, let's say with your large audience, posted one of your high quality essays on let's just say the Twitter native review uh, yeah. <laughs> newsletter service versus on Epsilon theory 
I would imagine you would have much more engagement for that tweet. I get the sense that external links are somehow severely penalized. Have you have you noticed that? Frankly, no. And, and I've used review. I stopped using review because it it ends up cannibalizing the website and that website experience, which gives people a sense of belonging and again makes that affinity more likely. When you go to review or to Substack, your, your, your stuff looks like, feels like everyone else's, everyone else's. And that's good, right, if you are Substack, although we can talk about Substack as a business in a second because it's not a great business. Right? Uh, but it, it, it does not lead in my case, to any new paid subscriptions, any, any new paid subscriptions. In fact, it turned people off. I lost, uh, I'll call them subscribers, but I'll call them, you know, subscribers to the email list because you get yet another kind of cookie cutter reminder email from the review or in this, or case Substack, which comes out in its own format. There's no customization. You lose your voice. This is what I'm saying. When you go onto one of these platforms, you lose a lot of what makes you authentic and differentiated, and people are not willing to make an affinity purchase for that. They're really not. So, you know, there are two things that drive, now, Twitter absolutely drives traffic to my website. There are only two things that drive traffic to the website. Email, which is the biggest driver of traffic, the website and Twitter. I like Twitter for that purpose. And I do find that people will click through sometimes, right? To go to the article. Usually they'll just read it or assume they know what it says or read the headline. You've got to have the compelling picture with it all. All of these are issues, again, with going onto one of these platforms because you lose your ability to present yourself as the authentic differentiated person that you probably are, right? Uh, but the name of the game, frankly, is email. And in those emails, you don't want to look like, oh, my God, another Substack, you know, email that's coming into my, uh, into my website. An alternative approach for you with such a large audience ahead of the game, really, hundreds of thousands, well, over 100,000 email subscribers. Yeah. Um, you could have kept it open and then just sort of grow that denominator to a very large number. Or did you feel, did you feel like you had sort of reached close to your natural audience? Great question. And the short answer is that I find that the compromises you have to make to reach that mass audience uh, are compromises I wasn't interested in making. And what I mean by a compromise may not be kind of what most people think of. I, to reach a mass audience today, you've got, I think, what you have to do, at least in the stuff that I write about, markets, or you know, there's some politics in there. You've got to go either MAGA or you've got to go you know, way on the other side. Sad but true. Yeah, and, 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 and my God, I'd just rather blow my brains out than, 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 than do that. But, but that's, 
that's the ticket for a mass audience, I think, today. I wish there were another, and that's why I say that your life is so much more enjoyable and authentic if you can find that audience, that core audience of, you know, five or 6,000 people who are willing to pay money to be part of your crowd, who see themselves as part of that community. It is absolutely building that community that is everything for being an independent content producer. If you lose your authenticity, you're done. You are done. Uh, you know, people smell that a mile away and you can't get that stench off. So it's got to be differentiated. You've got to be authentic. And the last thing, what you lose by going onto one of these platforms, and certainly what you lose by changing your content to fit a platform, in this case, a political platform, is all those things that would differentiate you or give you that voice of authenticity for a core audience who wants to make that affinity purchase. Why are you bearish Substack as a business? In my understanding, right, is that their, their revenues, forget profits, right? They're no profits, but their revenues. Somebody has, you know, because they had to, they were looking at doing an IPO and they were, you know, made these filings. You know, my guess was, oh, they must be doing something like $70 million a year in revenue. No, it was like 10 or 11. It was, it was some incredibly small number of revenues, which makes sense, right? If you're only taking 20% or 10% out of the subscription revenues, I'm talking about their operating revenues, and you're paying people who do have an audience to come on, you're subsidizing them to try to come on and build out your, 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 your operation. And you have, I forget, I think they've got like 110 people headcount. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is the epitome of the kind of business that works when liquidity is growing and everybody's throwing money at stuff. And it's the kind of business that you are burning money, you are losing money hand over fist. And I don't see how you ever get to profitability here. I just don't. That's, that's, in, that's interesting. I, uh, I'll have to look at it more. Um... They're also fighting cultural. Are scarily low, and the headcount is scarily high. So that's why I think it's going to be hard to to make it work. They're also fighting cultural trends because you really want to be long short attention spans. You don't you don't want to be long increasing attention spans. I've noticed that over time. That is very true. That is very true. Well, this was so great. Thank you so much. I'm I'm deeply appreciative. Thanks. Bye bye.